Praise God. Well, it's been a pleasure to have this. Man, it's been fun for me. I enjoy sitting and listening to other people minister and seeing all that God's doing. And so it's been a great time. I've talked to a number of people said this is the best week of their life. And uh, many people's lives have been changed. And I believe that, you know, as we look back, that this is going to be a turning point in many, many people's lives. Really believe that. So praise God. That's profitable. That's great. I've been sharing on the cross all of this week, and I started out of Galatians 6.14, where Paul said, God forbid that I should glory in anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus. And I've been explaining, the very first night I talked about what is the cross, and basically it's what Jesus did for us. And He paid it all. He didn't pay part of it. It's talking about that He became a substitute and all of God's wrath, not some of it, but all of God's wrath was placed upon Jesus. There isn't any wrath left in God for those who've accepted Jesus because His wrath was poured out on Jesus completely. And so when we're talking about the cross of Christ, we're talking about what Jesus did and also the method by which we obtain it, which is by grace. You don't earn it. You can't earn such a great gift. You know, it's uh, when a person is thinking that somehow or another they can do something to deserve what Jesus did for them, in a sense, you are diminishing and decreasing the gift. You know, I had a woman one time that... We said that we give all of our tapes away, and she wrote in and requested three tapes. That's what we offered at the time was three free tapes a week. And she, off, she requested three tapes, but she says, nobody's going to give me anything free. I pay my way. And so she says, you bill me for these tapes. So we sent her those three tapes and didn't send her a bill. And she waited for a while, and she wrote in, and she says, I don't know what happened. There was a mistake. But I never got a bill for those first three tapes. Nobody gives me anything. And so now you bill me for... She requested three more tapes and she says, you bill me for six tapes. So we sent her those three tapes and we didn't bill her. And she wrote in again and she was mad. Like, I don't know who, what you're doing, but nobody pays. Nobody gives me anything free. I pay my way. And she says, you give me three more tapes and unless I get a bill, I'll never get anything from you again. I pay my way. So I wrote this woman a personal letter. And I said, look, my stuff is more valuable than you got money. You don't have enough money to pay for it. I said, it'll change your life. I said, you either accept it free, and if you want to give me an offering, you can give an offering, but you cannot buy my stuff. It's too good. That's what I told her. I never did hear back from her. She may not have shared that opinion. But when it comes to Jesus, it's absolutely true. Jesus was such a great gift. For you to think that you can do something to deserve it diminishes and decreases the gift. And basically, this is what religion has been teaching people, that yes, God has an atonement, there is forgiveness, God will move in your life, but you've got to be worthy of getting it. You aren't worthy. I had a man, I think it was either this evening or, or this morning or sometime, but Recently, we were walking over here to the building, and he says, man, this has just helped me. I just, I realize I don't deserve anything. And I said, you got it. You don't deserve the goodness of God. And he says, but I can receive it through Jesus. And I said, bingo, that's the gospel. Amen. You know, I heard a story about a guy who died and went to heaven, and in heaven, 
this angel came up to him and said, what's your name? And he told him his name. And he says, well, he says, we're going to have to give you a quiz to see if you qualify to come into heaven. He says, I'm going to give you this test and rate you on how you did. And you got to have 100 points to be able to get into heaven. The guy said, no problem. I can do it. So he says, okay, first question. He says, did you attend church? He says, oh, I never miss church. I was there every time the doors were open. I was always there. And he says, okay, that's one point. He says, one point? And he says, did you give every time? And he says, oh, yeah, I gave every time. And he says, well, that's half a point right there. And he says, half a point? He says, were you faithful to your wife? He says, yes, I never cheated on my wife. I was faithful. He says, we'll give you two points for that one. And this guy just, you know, after five or ten points, he was saying, man, if this is what it takes, it'll only be by the grace of God that I get in here. And he says, bingo, come on in. (laughs) But, you know, basically people are trying to earn God's favor and you can't do it. We talked about that when you mentioned the cross, when Paul talked about the cross ten times, He used that terminology, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross. He's talking about, I'm glorying in what Jesus did. I am not glorying in what I do. I don't put faith in what I do. And it all comes by grace. It has nothing to do with you. The only thing you have to offer is your sin. The only thing that qualifies you for salvation is if you're a sinner. Jesus died for sinners. So unless you're a sinner, you don't qualify. If you sin, then that makes you a candidate for salvation. Jesus paid it all, and all you have to do is receive it by grace. And then we begin to talk about the offense of the cross. This is offensive to people when you say it's all about Him and that you can't earn, you don't deserve anything. And you know, one of the reasons I think this is so prevalent, I'm just guessing here, I don't know for sure, but my opinion, I think that ministers preach legalism because for one thing, it's just naturally, it makes sense to the natural mind because everything in the natural is based on how you perform. And so it's contrary to our intuitive nature, our carnal nature. But I think preachers minister law and condemnation a lot because it gives you control. You can manipulate people. You can say, if you don't come to this church and if you don't do this and if you don't do this, God won't answer your prayers. And boy, you can get people to pony up. You can get people to give in the offering by preaching manipulation and control. And so it is very attractive. And a lot of ministers... When you start saying that God loves you independent of your actions and performance, they have fear like all the people. If you take away the fear that God's not going to answer their prayers and bless them, well then what's going to keep them living holy? What's going to make them come to church? What's going to make them study the Bible? How about love? Love is a stronger motivation than fear. But see, if you preach that the cross, that Jesus did it all and it's available to you as a gift, all you've got to do is believe and receive, that is offensive to the natural mind, to the religious person. We also talked about who are the enemies of the cross out of Philippians chapter 3. And he says that those who are still preaching circumcision, which we spent a lot of time talking about, that's those that are still preaching that you have to keep the precepts of the law and live by the law are the enemies of the cross of Christ. There are a lot of Christians, quote-unquote Christians, that are actually an enemy to what Jesus did. They are saying Jesus isn't enough. You've also got to do these things before God will move in your life. Strong statements. And then last night, I talked about hell, which a lot of people might have been surprised for me to teach on that. 
But I think it's important for us to realize that when I'm saying that God has done everything and He's paid for our sins, that doesn't mean that everybody's saved. He's provided salvation. He died for the sins of the whole world, but we have to accept it. And the Holy Spirit convicts us over the one sin in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, the one sin of not believing on Jesus. That's what sends a person to hell. And when you look at it that way, then this whole thing about how could this person be punished for eternity who did minor things compared to this person who was a mass murderer. It's not about those individual sins. The only thing that sends a person to hell is the sin of rejecting the greatest gift that the world has ever had, and that's Jesus. And that makes every person that rejects Jesus equally guilty of the same thing. And I guarantee you that is infinitely worse than homosexuality, rape, murder, plunder, anything you could do. The worst thing of all is to deny God who became flesh and did these things for us. So I believe it's important that we understand that there is hell and that you don't get a second chance, that we need to make some decisions right now. And we use that out of Luke chapter 16, the parable or or the teaching about the uh, rich man and Lazarus. Let's turn over to John chapter 19. And tonight I just want to read a portion of the crucifixion of Jesus. We've been talking about the cross and I just want to talk about this. John is gives the shortest account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And you really have to look at all four of the Gospels and put them together to get the complete picture of what happened. But let me just read some here out of John chapter 19. And let's start reading with verse 16. It says, Then delivered He, this is talking about Pilate, delivered Him, Jesus, therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led Him away. And He bearing His cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified Him and two other with Him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified him, took his garment and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout, and they said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, and that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture... They did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. That's Psalms chapter 22, verse 18. It was prophesied that this would happen. You know, I've got in my Life for Today study Bible, if you read it, the crucifixion of Jesus. If anybody ever doubted whether this was just normal and whether He was just a man and if this just happened and whether this was really the Son of God, in my study Bible, I've got it written down and I forget now, but there are something like 38 prophecies that were fulfilled while he hung on the cross that were so specific even down to this prophecy that they would not 
rip his garment, but they would cast lots for it. They ripped all of his other clothing, but this cloak was woven in one piece. It didn't have any seams in it. It made it more valuable, and the soldiers decided rather than cutting it into parts and just getting a part of cloth, they cast lots for that to see who would get it. You know, the chances of that happening, I heard a guy one time, I, I don't know this personally, but I heard a guy take these like 39 prophecies that were fulfilled on the cross. He said that they gave him gall to drink. He said, I thirst. His, his brethren mocked him and made fun of him. They will look on him who they pierced. They pierced my hands and feet and just on and on and on the prophecies go. And a guy figured out mathematically using the law of probability what the chances are of 39 very specific prophecies being fulfilled where, and it's astronomical. It is, it's impossible. It's statistically impossible. If you were to really take this and just read about this and meditate on it, the fact that everything was done according to prophecy hundreds of years before and fulfilled down to the very letter leaves no doubt to anybody who's got ears to hear that this was God. That this was God manifest in the flesh. That this wasn't just accidental. So they even parted His garment according to prophecy. In uh, the next verse it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw His mother and His and this and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then said he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. You know, even as Jesus was dying and bearing the sins of the whole world and suffering death, Jesus was thinking about his mother and taking care of her. Man, that's awesome. That is awesome. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, and then again, this was a prophecy from Psalms chapter 22. After he had done that and fulfilled all of the prophecy, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He gave it up. It wasn't taken from him. The other thieves were still alive. They marveled that he was already dead, but it's because nobody killed Jesus. He gave his life. He suffered all of this, and he offered his life, and he said, it is finished. I want you to think about this. When he said, it is finished, what was finished? This wasn't all of salvation was finished. Because it says in Ephesians chapter 4, which is a quotation again of an Old Testament prophecy, I think it's Psalms chapter 16, that he descended into the lower parts of the earth and he led captivity captive. So Jesus had to go into the lower parts of the earth. He literally went to hell and he overcame hell and came out of hell with the keys of death and of hell dangling on his side. Revelation chapter 1 says that. So Jesus hadn't finished everything. And then... Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe it's around verse 10, 12, that if Christ isn't risen, then is our faith made void. So Christ had to rise from the dead. He not only died for our sins, but if He hadn't have risen and conquered death, our salvation wouldn't have been complete. So that wasn't finished. He had to rise from the dead on the third day. And then after he was risen from the dead, the very first person he appeared to was Mary Magdalene, and she grabbed him by the feet 
And he said, don't cling to me because I have to ascend to my father and to your father. And he had to go, according to Hebrews chapter 9, and sprinkle his blood on the mercy seat of the temple in heaven and sanctify us and redeem us. And so he told her not to cling to him. Later in that same day, the other woman, women saw him and they clung to him and he didn't say a single thing. So apparently after his physical resurrection, he appeared to his disciples, but then he went to heaven and there were things that he had to do and he had to sprinkle the mercy seat. And so what I'm saying is when he says it's finished, redemption wasn't complete yet. It wasn't all over because if he didn't rise from the dead, our faith would have been in vain. It wouldn't have worked. So what was finished? You know, this is what the cross is all about. He accomplished something on the cross that a lot of people really haven't thought of. Look at this passage over in Daniel chapter 9. This is a prophecy that was given to Daniel by the angel that appeared unto him. And I'm just going to read a portion of this. But this angel said in Daniel chapter 9, and this is all prophecy about Jesus. It told him about the 70 weeks and exactly when the Messiah would come. This is prophecy about Jesus, and here's what it says in Daniel chapter 9 and in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to set up, uh, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And again, you could spend a lot of time studying this, but notice it says to make an end of the transgression, an end of sins, to establish everlasting righteousness, Jesus literally put an end to sin through His sacrifice. You know, there's a passage of Scripture that I usually spend a lot of time on. Just for time's sake tonight, I'm going to refer to it. But you can look it up in John chapter 12, verse 32. And that verse says that when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And many people interpret that, that if you just preach Jesus properly, everybody's going to come. And the Holy Spirit will draw everybody to Jesus. But I don't believe that that's true. You can't observe that. The people who are preaching the Word the strongest are not the ones with the biggest churches. Now, I'm not saying that God won't draw people to you, but I'm saying that this thing that if you've got large crowds, it must be because you've lifted up Jesus. That's not what it's talking about. If you take the context, verse 31, it was about judgment. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of the air be cast out. And then verse 32 says, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all. And the word men is italicized. The King James translators did that because sometimes they would add words to try and add clarity, but it wasn't in the original language. The sentence structure in Greek is different than English. And literally it just, it says, I will draw all unto me. They put the word men in there to help clarify, but the subject was judgment. And then right after that, it says, This spake he of the uh, death wherewith he would die. Or how does that go? Have you got that up there, Lori? John twelve thirty three. What does twelve thirty three say? This he said signifying what death he should die. He was talking about crucifixion. He was talking about his death on the cross. He wasn't talking about being lifted up in preaching. He was talking about when he was lifted up on the cross, he would draw all of God's judgment. Not some of it, 
All of it. It was like a lightning rod that attracted the judgment for every person's sin who has ever lived or ever will live in the history of the world. All of that came on Jesus. Again, you can see this reflected over in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. I wanted to use those scriptures, but I just ran out of time. Man, this subject about the cross is awesome. But you read Isaiah 52 and 53 about the judgment that came on Jesus on the cross. And it's amazing. It says in Isaiah 52, 13, I believe it is, that his face or visage is the King James was marred more than any man. That's talking about his face and his form more than the sons of men. This is saying that Jesus' face looked worse than any person's face who has ever lived on the face of the earth. And his form, one of the translations says, so that he didn't even look human. No beating could have accomplished that. You know what happened? It wasn't just the physical suffering, but God's wrath came upon Jesus. Every sickness, every disease, every vile thing that has ever hit anybody on the face of the earth came into the physical body of Jesus so that His face was worse than any person's face that has ever lived. And He didn't look human. It didn't even look like a human being hanging on the cross. I tell you, people talk about that show, The Passion of the Christ, and talk about how graphic and people debated, you know, whether Mel Gibson went over the top. He didn't even come close. When I saw that, I was actually disappointed because I've seen it through the Scripture. I've had the Holy Spirit reveal this to me, and I've seen Jesus crucified. You know, it says over in Galatians chapter 3, how could you have done this who had Jesus crucified before you evidently set forth? They didn't see the physical crucifixion of Jesus, but they had it described and it was so real, quickened by the Holy Spirit, that they had a revelation. As I was watching that show of the Passion of the Christ and I was processing my feelings and I was, I was impacted by it. I'm not saying I disliked it or it was bad, but I was just disappointed. It was like the true suffering of Jesus was infinitely worse than that. It didn't even come close. It didn't even do justice to it. For one thing, all it did was depict the physical suffering. He couldn't depict what Jesus was feeling as His Father forsook Him and turned away from Him. There's no way that you can show these things. I was watching this and I was, I was thinking, Father, I'm disappointed in this. What's wrong with me? Because everybody else talked about how greatly it impacted them. And the Lord spoke to me and He said, Andrew, He said, through the Holy Spirit and through Scripture you have a greater revelation of my suffering and what I went through than my disciples who were physically present watching me die. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't understand that He could have called 10,000 angels. They didn't understand that He gave up the ghost. It looked like He was killed by others. They didn't understand what I understand. The crucifixion of Jesus can be more real to you than it was to the disciples who were there. That is an amazing statement. And so the book of Isaiah, especially chapter 52 and 53, paints such a graphic picture that if you were to read that, it's just amazing. And it says it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. By His stripes we were healed. 
Jesus suffered more on the cross than what anybody could imagine. None of us can understand. Plus, Jesus had such a close relationship with His Father that for His Father to turn away from Him and He cried out and said, My God, my God, why have Thou forsaken Me? That's a quotation from Psalms chapter 22, verse 1. For Him to cry that out, it was greater than any forsaking or separation or anything that anybody's ever done to us because Jesus and His Father were one. They'd been together for eternity. Man, Jesus loved His Father and for His Father to forsake Him. He didn't forsake Him because of what Jesus did. He forsook Jesus because that's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. And God put on Him the iniquity of us all. And over there in Psalms chapter 22, verse 3, it tells you why God forsook Him. Because God is holy and that inhabits the praises of His people Israel. Jesus became unholy. Jesus became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For He... God the Father made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus literally became sin. He didn't just take a little bit of sin. He didn't suffer a little bit. He became sin. And I know people get upset at this and say, what are you saying? I'm saying what the Bible says. I don't fully understand it, but Jesus became sin for us. He didn't just taste a little bit of sin. Jesus became sin. Jesus became vile. He became shameful. He bore our sin. Anything that you've ever suffered, your worst night of sin, your worst humiliation, your worst thing that has ever happened to you, Jesus suffered all of that times billions and billions and billions of people and all of that entered into Him. And He suffered that emotionally, physically, separation from God the Father. And what I'm saying is, God placed this punishment upon Him. And for you to sit there and think that I've also got to be holy or God won't answer my prayer, I've got to do these things or God won't move in my life, you aren't understanding. You're making light of the cross. You are glorying in something besides the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, He put an end to God's demand for punishment. He satisfied the wrath of God. And He put an end to the law. He literally obliterated it. Look at this over in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to share some things with you that if you haven't heard this, it may sound like heresy, but just remember we're reading Scripture. I'm not saying these things. Colossians, well, let's first of all just read a verse in chapter 1, verse 20. It says, And having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him I say whether they be things in earth or in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. Boy, that is so powerful. And yet, did you know that the average person through religion has had this diminished and decreased? To say, well, that's what God wants to do, but you see, I haven't lived up to it. And even after I've been born again, I haven't done everything right. And I haven't sought the Lord. This has nothing to do with what you do. All you've got to do is accept it. And if you accept Jesus, John chapter 4, verse 24 says, God is a spirit. 
And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is looking at you in your spirit man, not your outward man. And in your spirit, you were born again righteous and truly holy. Ephesians 4.24 As He is, so are you in this world. 1 John 3.17 Your spirit is as perfect and pure as Jesus is. And if you are going to worship Him, you have to worship Him through this born again part of you that has been reconciled to God that is holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in His sight. If you don't feel holy, unblameable, and unreprovable, it's because you are approaching God on the basis of your actions, your thoughts, your goodness. You aren't coming through the cross and faith in what Jesus did for you. Any person who has any sense of unworthiness, it's because you haven't fully understood the cross. You think that you have to add something else to it. But it's finished. You don't have to live holy. It is not based on your actions anymore. The cross reconciled us unto God once and for all, not just till the next time you sin. And then you got to get it under the blood. Arthur dealt with that uh, Thursday morning, I think it was, teaching. I've got a whole series on that about eternal redemption. All of your sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven and dealt with. Once you get born again and accept Jesus, your spirit is sanctified and holy forever. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14. Man, that's powerful. And then over in the second chapter, he continues. And it says uh, in verse 9, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You know, I talked about this on, I think it was Tuesday night, and I won't go back through that, but that fits perfectly with all of these things that we are saying, that we are the true Israel of God, we are the true circumcision, and you have had the body of sins cut off and put away. In your spirit, man, there is no sin. If you have been born again, if you have accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made and all you have to do is receive it by faith, then you become a brand new person and in your spirit you are sanctified and holy forever. Man, those are awesome statements. And then in verse 12, "...buried with Him in baptism, wherein you were also risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who raised Him from the dead." And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together. The word quickened means to make alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You know, again, a religion is just, you know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, that you make the word of God of no effect by your traditions and doctrines of men. And religion has made the word of none effect. This says that God forgave us of all, all, trespasses. And religion has come along and said, well, that only means all up until the time you get born again. And then after you get born again, every time you sin, every time you fail to do something, it negates Christ and you got to go back and get it re-forgiven. You got to get the blood reapplied. One of the religious statements is people say you got to get that sin under the blood. 
All of your sins, past, present, and even the ones you haven't committed, were all forgiven by God in advance. You don't have to get every sin under the blood. And I know somebody's just going tilt right now saying, that can't be. How could God forgive a sin before I commit it? He only died for your sins one time 2,000 years ago. And if God can't forgive and atone for sin before you commit it, then you can't be forgiven. Because He didn't wait until you came along and sinned to die for your sins. He died and forgave your sins before you were ever born. Before you were ever, ever existed. So when this says that we have been forgiven of all trespasses... That means all. It means the ones in the past, the ones that you're currently doing, if you're screwing up right now, or the ones that you ever will do. You are forgiven. Sin has been taken care of. Jesus suffered for all of your sin. I've already said this, but just, I know there's going to be somebody who's, this is your only time to hear me, so I've got to say this. Does that mean that you just go live in sin? No, it God has forgiven you. He's not going to be affected by your sin. He's not going to fall off His throne if you do something wrong. He's already forgiven you and it's not going to affect the way He deals with you. But every time you sin, you give Satan an inroad into your life. Romans 6.16 Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield yourself to sin, you are yielding yourself to Satan who tempted you to do that sin and you are giving Satan the free shot at you and you're going to suffer. You're going to pay a price. And you don't want to do that. So yes, sin still has consequences. But the way I describe it is there's not only a vertical consequence, a, sin, a transgression that was against God that was worthy of judgment, but sin also has a horizontal effect. Sin opens you up to Satan. It opens you up. If you go out and lie about people and do things to people, people are going to get mad at you and people will criticize you and you may lose your mate. They may divorce you. You may have all kinds of things happen. You may get fired from your job. You may get thrown in jail if you go out and don't abide by the laws of society. There are consequences to your sin down here on this, uh, on this horizontal plane. But the wrath of God was placed on Jesus. It's been satisfied. So you never again suffer this vertical punishment from God against your sin. That was placed on Jesus. But sin still has punishment from people, from the devil. And so as much as you can, live holy. But when you do sin, don't feel like that you're back to square one and that you lost your relationship with God and how could God ever love me because He's already dealt with it. You know, I gave an example of my sister who uh, she's a spirit-filled Christian. She had a woman choked to death on, I think, some gum in the back seat of her car, and she raised her from the dead. She's seen miracles happen. My sister knows better. But my, my niece, my oldest niece, uh, could make a saint cuss. I mean, she was rebellious when she was a kid, and she just knew all of the buttons to push. And when she was a little kid... My sister was fixing supper for her husband. He was a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University, and he was bringing another professor home. So they had company coming. She was fixing supper. Joyce was busy doing things and working. And Lee came in and just started smarting off and saying things and aggravating Joyce and doing stuff. And Joyce lost her temper and hit her. Knocked her flat of her back right in the kitchen. 
And man, she felt so bad about what she did. She ran upstairs, threw herself across the bed, and she said, Lord, you've got to say something to me because if I start crying, I won't come out of here till tomorrow morning and I've got all of this stuff I've got to do. I need a word of help. And the Lord just spoke to her and said, Joyce, when you were eight years old and got born again, I knew you'd do this. I've already forgiven you. So it's okay. Don't feel too bad about it. And you know what? She was able to go down. And that didn't allow her to say, oh man, I'm already forgiven. So just slap her daughter around some more. No, she went down and asked forgiveness and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong to do that. And she apologized. But she was able to go on because, see, she didn't feel like it was something brand new between her and God that she's got to repent and get Him back in favor that He had lost His love for her. That's what most people feel, that every time we sin, oh God, I failed you again. He, knew, he knows every time you will fail Him throughout your entire life and He's already forgiven all of them. He's already forgiven all of your sin. I know some of you are choking on this because it's not uh, typical, but I've got a teaching on eternal redemption. I've got a series entitled Redemption, and one of the teachings in there is eternal redemption that will prove this, I believe, from Scripture, that you've been sanctified and perfected forever. So this is what it's talking about, that you were forgiven of all trespasses, in verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way nailing it to His cross. You know what this is talking about? The handwriting of ordinances was the law. All of the commands. All of the things that you must do. This says that God took it out of the way. He blotted it out. Did you know in modern times we use ink that has like an acid in it that sets it into the paper? But in the time that this was written... They had different types of paper and ink just literally sat on top of that paper and you could literally blot it out. You could smear it or just literally take it away like it never existed. That's what this word is referring to, that all of the things that were written against us have basically just been erased. They've been obliterated. The Lord took those things away and He nailed it to His cross. Did you know that when Jesus hung on the cross, He literally became sin for us. And the law prescribed a penalty for every sin. And what Jesus did was take that prescribed penalty and He suffered it in His body on the cross. And when He died instantly in the temple, the veil that split the Holy of Holies from the holy place that separated people and they could only go in one time a year. Only one person, the high priest who was symbolic of Jesus, could go in and he had to be perfect. If he wasn't perfect, he would be struck dead. He had to make sacrifices for himself and purge himself of his own sins before he could go in and represent the people because this high priest was symbolic of Jesus who was perfect and who was sinless and he didn't have any sin. And so there was this veil that separated. You know, I've read about this in the veil. It was, I forget, in Solomon's temple, I think it was 120 feet long this way, which is probably wider than this auditorium. Do you know? Yeah. How wide is this auditorium? 100. So it's 20 feet wider than this auditorium is, and it was 60 feet tall. This is probably what, 30 feet, 25, 30? Huh? 
20 feet. So it was 60 feet tall, three times as tall as this auditorium, and it had gold woven through it. And so it actually was like a metal curtain with this gold. It strengthened it. And Josephus, a first century historian, wrote about all of this and said that the, with the gold in this curtain, that horses, teams of horses, couldn't rip this curtain apart. It was a solid curtain. didn't have a thing in the middle where you went through. It was a solid curtain that separated, and only the high priest went in once a year. But at the moment Jesus died, that curtain was rent in two from the top to the bottom. Even if somehow you had enough force to rent the curtain, it certainly you couldn't have done it from 60 feet up in the air and come down. But it was rent from the top to the bottom. And what that was symbolic of in Hebrews chapter 10, I'll just quote this to you, it says that we need to enter into the Holy of Holies by a new and living way which God hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh. Boy, those words, we just read over this and we don't understand it, but it was written to the Hebrews, to the Jews. Jews never went into the Holy of Holies. Only one person, one time a year, the high priest ever went in there, and he went in there with fear and trembling after great pomp and circumstance because it was dangerous. People were struck dead. Uh, Aaron's sons, two of them, were killed because they didn't approach God in the correct way. And they were burnt to death by the power of God. And so this whole concept of entering into the holiest, we just read it and don't think about it. But that was something that could not be done under the Old Testament. The Old Testament law did not provide a way to God. The Old Testament law, all it did was show you how far short of relationship with God you came. And all it did was work wrath. It released judgment and power. It was contrary to us is what the scripture says. It wasn't for us. One of the greatest deceptions that Satan has ever had is to make people think that God gave the law because He loved us and wanted to show us all of the things that we must do. God gave the law to people who basically thought that they were good enough, that they didn't need God, that God had to accept them. They were just thrilled with who they were and they didn't even realize how ungodly we were. And so it's like, you know, a person that... You know, if you have something right here that's this high and say, you got to jump this to be saved. Somebody says, oh, I could do that. And so they start training and they work and they work and they work so that they can meet this standard. Well, God came along and says, you think that this is enough? Let me show you what my standard is. And he started saying, thou shalt not. And he raised the bar so high that nobody could ever obtain unto it. The purpose of the law was to condemn you and show you you can't save yourself. And one of the slickest deceptions of religion is to make people embrace the law and say, thank you for showing me all that I must do to be right. The law was given to show you you can't ever get right. Give it up. Hang it up. Run up a white flag. Call out to God for mercy and quit trying to be self-righteous. And so the law was contrary to us and He took it out of the way nailing it to his cross. Look at a couple of scriptures over here in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. In verse 18, I'm drop, jumping right into the middle of this, but the whole book is about this whole thing, so there's really no good place to enter this. 
It just says in verse 18, Hebrews 7, 18, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. That is quite a statement. The word annul means to completely void. If you get married and then if you get your marriage annulled, it's just like it never happened. And the word disannul really isn't a word. It's a kind of a made-up word, I guess, by Paul. He's just It's to say annulling means to completely void. The word disannul means just to obliterate. It's just a strengthened form of the word. It's just saying that there is, isn't anything of the law left. The law has been disannulled. It's been nailed to the cross. It's been taken out of the way. It's been blotted out. And here's other verses in chapter 8. It says um, in verse 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith. And this is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. And it quotes and it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord." See, the thing that was wrong with the Old Testament, there was nothing wrong with any of the laws. Everything that God commanded was good. It was just that we were sinful. And nobody could live up to that standard. And so there was nothing wrong with the law. There was something wrong with the people to whom the law was given. We voided it because we could, nobody could ever keep it. And so He had to make a new covenant that wasn't based on your performance. This is what all of this is saying. In verse um, 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. Did you know this is often quoted to say that every single Jew is eventually going to be saved? From the least to the greatest. This is talking about that those who receive salvation aren't going to have it just told to them. It's not going to be an intellectual thing, but it comes by revelation. God will speak to everyone personally and reveal Himself to you, and every single person will have a personal relationship with God from the least to the greatest. This isn't a promise that every single Jew will be saved. That's not uh, provided in Scripture. This is talking about every person in this new covenant will be taught of the Lord and will know Him from the least to the greatest. And then in verse uh, 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. In that He saith a new covenant, He hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And you could just go on and on and on and on and on with this. The law... Oh, I don't even know if I want to say that. That would open up something I'd have to explain. But the law is not what most people have embraced it to be. 
The law wasn't given to set you free. It was given to bind you. It was given to shut you up under the grace that should afterwards be revealed. Galatians chapter 3 says that. And the law was contrary to us. And He took it out of the way and He nailed it to His cross. And when He said, it is finished, He was talking about the justification, trying to have relationship with God based on law, based on performance, was over. That the law was fulfilled. Jesus said that until heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle of the law will never pass until all has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled every precept of the law. He kept the law perfectly, and therefore He became a representative of the entire human race, and He suffered every bit of God's wrath against sin for all eternity, and when He did, He put an end to the law for righteousness. And our sins and iniquities He'll remember no more. We sang about it tonight in the song that Jill wrote out of Psalms 103, that He's merciful and kind unto us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. That's an infinite distance. If you're on a globe... And if you go east, you'll eventually come back around and meet yourself. But if you just took a straight plane and separated the east from the west, that's an infinite distance. God has removed our sins from us. He doesn't hold our sins against us. He doesn't remember our sins anymore. This is what happened on the cross. Jesus paid it all and said, it's finished. Sin was finished. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, to put an end to sins and to transgressions. Sin is finished. It's over. It's paid for. It's paid in full. It's like you had a debt and God paid it and gave you a document that says, paid in full. It's over. But you know what? Again, religion hasn't taught us this. What they've done is say, no, you still got to keep the law. you still got to do this. you still got to do this, this, this. And because of it, the average Christian doesn't know that their sins have been blotted out. That the law that caused sin has been nailed to the cross. In 1 John chapter 3, and I believe it's verse 4, it says sin is the transgression of the law. If the law has been paid for and removed and blotted out then guess what? God is not imputing sin unto you. That's a quotation from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I believe it's verse 9, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing men's sins unto them. In the Old Testament, people's sins were imputed unto them. Romans chapter 5, verse 13. But in the New Covenant, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, he is not imputing our sins unto us. He's not holding our sins against us. We're feeling all of this guilt and condemnation not because God is the author of it. It's our religious teaching that has corrupted our conscience and is making us feel guilt and things. And the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 2 that we should have no more conscience of sin. And those are awesome statements. Are you still over here in Colossians? Let's read Colossians 2.14 again. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. 
The terminology, if you look this up in the Greek, and having spoil, it's not talking about something that is a future tense thing, something that is still happening. Jesus, this is something that's in the past tense. He's already done it. He spoiled principalities and powers. And the word spoil here isn't talking about like fruit spoils or meat spoils, becomes rotten. It's talking about you conquer an enemy and you go strip them of everything that's of value and you take the spoils. When you take the spoils, it's because your enemy is conquered. If they could still defend themselves, you couldn't get the spoils. This is describing Satan as a defeated foe. And it also says that he spoiled principalities and powers, made a show of them openly. This word that is used for show is the word that we get our word exhibit from. And you know, when I first saw this, it reminded me of when I was in high school and we did these biology projects and you had to go catch all of these varmints, little insects, and, you know, put them in, uh, I don't know what it was, we used something to kill them, and then you put a pin through them and put on there and put their scientific name underneath it and had to do that. That's an exhibition, an exhibit. You make an exhibit of all of these things. And I can just see Satan impaled on the cross right here, just hung on the cross, amen, hanging there like one of those dead butterflies, amen, or something. And he's made an exhibit of. He was nailed to the cross. That's what this is talking about. He's not this powerful foe that everybody gives him credit for. And then the last part of that verse says, uh, triumphing over them in it, over them, over Satan and all of the demonic powers in it. And this word triumphing is a word that was used by the Romans for what they called a triumphant procession. And this is what they did when they conquered an opposing army or king. They would either take the king or the commanding general, the highest ranking person that they could find in that enemy camp, and they would take them and they'd cut both of their big thumb, their thumbs off, their big toes, they'd cut both toes off, they'd strip them totally naked and tie them to a horse or to a chariot and they'd have a parade and drag them or parade them through the town to show all of the Roman citizens, you don't have to fear this person anymore. He can't hold a sword. He can't run and chase anybody. If he could defend himself, he wouldn't be allowed to be stripped naked and tied to this chariot. And they would have a parade so that all the people who used to tremble at this person would see that you don't have to fear this person anymore. And this says that Jesus triumphed over Satan. He's referring to a, a triumphant procession. He's drawing on a word picture that the Romans were well acquainted with. And he's saying that Jesus completely overcame Satan, stripped Satan. Satan will never again be able to do anything. He is an absolute defeated foe. Sad to say, the body of Christ is glorifying the devil and ascribing power and dominion to him that he doesn't have. And because of that, Christians are intimidated by the devil when they shouldn't be. He is a stripped, defeated foe. The problem with most Christians is they miss the parade. It's right here in these pages, right here. It shows you he's, we've had a triumphant procession. The only thing he ever had against us, he couldn't come against us and say God doesn't have power. The only thing he could do is come and point out your sin. Sin gave Satan leverage against you. Reason to condemn you and to take away your confidence and boldness. And if you truly understand the cross, that it is finished. That the law has been finished. It says in 
Romans chapter 10 verse 4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to them who believe. You no longer try and obtain right standing with God by your actions. It is now all by the cross what Jesus did for you and all you have to do is put faith in Jesus and it is the end of the law for that. The law still has a function. Over in 2 Timothy chapter, or excuse me, maybe it's 1 Timothy. I seem to get these confused. But 1 or 2 Timothy, let me just look it up and I'll tell you. I think it's 1 Timothy. It says, um, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Verse 8 and then verse 9. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly, for whoremongers, adulterers, all of these kind of things. In other words, the law isn't made for a righteous man. Who's a righteous man? Any person who's been born again. You have become the righteousness of God in Christ. The law isn't made for a Christian. There is still a function to the law. If a person isn't born again and doesn't see their need for God and thinks, I'm a pretty good person. I don't need God. Or if I do need God, He's going to accept me because I'm so good. That's the person the law is made for. The law will bring that person to condemnation and guilt and a place of recognizing they need a Savior. I held a meeting in Houston, Texas a long time ago. About two, three hundred people in a hotel uh, auditorium. And there was a person standing outside, kind of heard me, and he listened for a while. And then he came in and sat down. And he stood up while I was preaching. And he said, and he just started saying, un, in, uh, you know, things that were, uh, he wasn't coherent. And he was either high on dope or drunk or something. And he started saying stuff. I tried to deal with him and he, he wasn't responding. So I just said, I command you to sit down and shut up in Jesus' name. And this guy just boom, plopped right down. And I went on with my message and after the meeting was over, I, I brought him up front and I started telling him about the love of God. And I said, you know what? God can forgive you. Whatever it is that your problems, the Lord can set you free. And I started ministering the love of God to him. It's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. That is the way that God would rather have people drawn to him by love than driven to him by fear. So I started sharing the love of God with him. But this guy, he was saying, I don't need God. I am God. And he started telling me he was God. And so you know what I did? I whooped the law out. I started saying, you think you're God. You stink in the nostrils of God. And I started quoting scriptures and just whittling this guy with the word. And within minutes, I had this guy just crying. Oh God, I'm so ungodly. That's the purpose of the law. The law is to show you your guilt and to take away this smugness that people have. And so for that purpose, the law still works. But once you come to Christ, once the law brings you to Christ, drives you to Christ, shows you that you cannot save yourself, and once you come to the cross, then the cross accomplished everything for you, and you no longer should be law-minded, performance-minded, and based. And the law is not made for a righteous man. The law gives condemnation and guilt. Man, I could give you bunches of scriptures on that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 through 12, and many other scriptures. The law is what's causing all of these problems. And Christians shouldn't even be under the law. 
We now have the law written in our heart. You intuitively know. If you truly got born again and accepted salvation, you intuitively know that Jesus paid it all. And you're so appreciative that you would do anything for Him. And you serve Him out of love and not out of fear. And you would wind up living holier accidentally by following love than you ever did on purpose by following law. And I know that there's a lot of people that say, no, that's not true. You've got to put fear in people to get them to do what's right. Well, one of the reasons that's so prevalent is because we've got a lot of people in our churches that have never been born again. They're religious. They believe that God exists, but they are under the deception that by going to church and being a good person, then God is going to accept me. And they have not truly been born again. They haven't had their heart changed. And so they're lost. It is their nature to live in sin. And the only thing that a lost man will respond to is fear and doubt as far as a long-term thing. But if you get a person born again, love is a stronger motivation than fear. You know, if the only reason Jamie loved me is because I threatened to beat her if she didn't do it, she, I might be able to get her to act and say the right things, but you know what? That wouldn't bless her. It wouldn't bless me. That's not the way that God wants us to relate. But if you can get a person to love you because they love you, not because you're perfect, but they just love you. Love, once you receive love like that, you'll give up anything. Love is a stronger motivation than fear but a less common motivation. And most religious people are afraid to let people go and just follow God based on their heart. They've got to put you under condemnation and say, if you do this, God, that's the reason God struck you with cancer. This is why this happened to your child. They were born this way because you didn't do this and that. And it keeps people in line and it keeps them under the thumb of people so that you can manipulate them and make them give. The church that I was brought up in, they didn't teach uh, what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. After two chapters of talking about giving, it says, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. Basically, that's saying the reason you give is because God... Look what God gave for us. Man, I give everything for Him. That's the motivation we should have. But the denomination I was brought up in preached, You're cursed with the curse if you don't tithe. God's wrath is coming upon you. And the pastor that I grew up under, he used to actually jump up on this part of the pulpit where you put your Bible. He would jump and stand on here and bend over and grab the mic and scream. He would lose up to five pounds every time he preached because he would scream and run. Some of you may think I'm exaggerating. Jamie was there. She saw this. It was weird. And one of his favorite sayings... One of his favorite sayings was to say, if you don't pay your tithe, God will take it out in doctor bills. In other words, you either pony up and you put your money in the bucket or God will put you in the hospital and take it from you. And there's a lot of you that have heard that same thing. You may not have heard it presented exactly that way, but it's the same thing. You're cursed. God's not going to bless you. Nothing's going to work unless you give. And so really they're preaching more about the Godfather than they are about God the Father. It's the old mafia type of thing about you either pay up and give me this hush money or I'm going to send Guido around. He's going to break your kneecaps. And so you pay up to stay you know, out of trouble. 
Well, in a sense, that's why the church is preaching that you give, is out of fear. In the New Testament, that's been changed. That's an Old Testament scripture. Christ redeemed us from that curse. I am not cursed if I don't tithe. I'm stupid if I don't tithe because I'm not planting my seed, but I'm not cursed. God's not going to hurt me. God's not going to take it from me. In the New Testament, it says 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I believe it's verse 7, let every man give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is not going to force you to give. God is not going to manipulate and put fear in you. And when you go to preaching this, the average preacher is just scared to death. Like, oh man, if you preach that, people will quit giving. Because they believe that you've got to put fear in them and give them a motivation to be able to give. You know, again, I wish we knew what the offering was this morning after Greg just preached that message, but I know it was at least thirty or $40,000 out of less than a 1,000 people were here this morning. It could have easily been $100,000. That's huge. Most churches would, would uh, kill or at least maim to do something like that. And we didn't do any of that. Love is a greater motivation than fear. And you do not have to be afraid that if I quit fearing that God is going to judge me and punish me, that I'll just go and indulge my flesh. It's not so. Love will cause you to live holier. Will it cause you to be perfect? No. In your spirit, you're perfect. And God looks at you and sees you're perfect. But you'll still make mistakes. You'll do things wrong. But you know, if you're truly born again, it grieves you. When you do something that you know you shouldn't. When you hurt another person. Because you know that God loves them. And you don't want to be the source of all of that. If you're truly born again, you, you will still make mistakes. But you'll wind up living a holier life by love than you will by fear and wrath. I just pray that this week you've understood a little bit more about the cross. That Jesus paid everything. That your sins have been obliterated. Past, present, and future. The law that was written against you is taken out of the way. It's blotted out. It's nailed to the cross. Satan, the only thing he ever had against you was your sins, and those sins are now forgiven. So he doesn't have anything that he can make stick. You ought to be like Teflon. No accusation can stick because you just say, Jesus took it. And if you understand this, it gives you a peace, it gives you a joy. It takes away this boasting in yourself and thinking you're better than somebody else because you realize that you deserve to go to hell. You don't deserve the blessing of God. You aren't getting what you deserve. You get what Jesus deserved and you simply put faith in Him. And it helps you to walk humbly with God. It helps you to get along with other people. It keeps you from being condemned. It'll give you joy and peace. It's impossible to be depressed thinking on the things that I'm talking about. It'll bring healing to your body. It just solves everything. I can guarantee you tonight, if you're struggling and you know that God has more for you, but it seems like Christ has been made of none effect, it's because you're living in, out of yourself, your strength. It's a law mentality thinking you've got to do these things. You believe God has the power. You just doubt that He will release it on your behalf because you aren't worthy and that's a law mentality. That's denying the cross. That's denying what Jesus did. If you can understand this, it'll just totally turn this around. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Jesus.
praise you, Father, for sending your Son. Hallelujah. You know, tonight, I'm sure that there's people here that consider yourself to be a Christian because you believe in God and you believe Jesus is the Son of God. But the truth is, you've never really put faith in a Savior. Your faith is in yourself. You're trusting your church attendance. You think that you're a relatively good person and you think somehow or another your good will outweigh your bad. And you may be one of these that considered yourself to be a Christian, but if after you've heard the gospel tonight, you realize that you haven't put faith in Jesus alone, that you're glorying in your own actions and stuff. And there are people in here that need to be born again who may have considered themselves Christians. If that's you, you need to make that profession. You need to receive this. And you aren't going to hear this very many times. You can't just say, well, let me think about it. Man, look what you're thinking about it. It's gotten you all of these years. You know what? If the Lord has convicted you and if you've come to realize that, man, you haven't really put faith in Jesus, you were just hoping that you would be good enough to get into heaven, you need to be born again. And once you get born again, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues. We've had about 70 or people or so this week receive the baptism. Maybe a dozen people or more receive salvation. But I don't want to take for granted. I'm sure there's people here. This is your first service this week. Maybe you haven't responded this week, but you need to respond now. If that's you, if you need one or both of those, if you need to make Jesus your, a personal profession of Him being your Savior and you putting total faith in Him and the cross, what He did, or if you've already done that, but if you have never received this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, I'd like to ask you to raise your hand and let me pray for you so that you could receive here tonight. Here's people right here. Praise God. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. Man, these people are ready. They're already coming forward. You know what? If you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just come forward right now and let's pray with you and help you to make Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I really believe that when we go to stand before the Lord, there's going to be people that got glimpses of what I was talking about. And they, they weren't sure whether they had truly put their faith in the Lord, but they just hated to admit it. They'd been in church their whole life. They'd been a moral person. And they just hated to admit that they aren't good enough and that they had to commit themselves to Jesus personally. And I tell you, I believe that that's going to be tragic to see people who because of fear of what somebody else said would not confess Jesus as their Lord. There may be somebody out there tonight who's saying, but man, I'm just, I, this can't be true of me. You know, if you have any doubt about it, you ought to get it resolved. You ought to come and publicly say that my faith is 100% in Jesus and not in myself. You don't need to pass this opportunity up. Anybody else want to come up here and receive? Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. All right, before I can pray for you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit... You first of all have to be born again and know for certain that you are born again. You have to make sure that your faith is in Jesus 
and not in yourself. Just imagine that if you were to stand in heaven right now before God, and God said, what makes you worthy? What would you point to? Would you point to what you've been doing, your church attendance, your goodness, say, I've tried hard, I repented, I did this, or would you say it's the cross? It's what Jesus did on the cross. If you can't point to Jesus, and I mean sincerely, then you need to make Jesus your personal Lord. Is there anybody here who needs to do that before we pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Anybody? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Praise God, brother. Here's another one. Here's two, three more. Anybody else? Another one. Praise God. Isn't this awesome? Praise God. This is going to change your life. Praise the Lord. The Bible says, I've already talked about it all tonight. Jesus paid for everything. He loves you already and He's forgiven your sins. So all you've got to do is receive it. And it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. That's more than just saying the words. It's saying that you're making Him your Lord. You're trusting Him. You're giving your life. You're leaning on Him 100% for salvation. It doesn't mean you'll do it perfectly. You'll fail. But that's your decision, that I want to make you my Lord. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's what the Bible says. So if you will say these words after me, I'm going to pray the words that you need to pray. And if you will say it and believe it in your heart, then you're going to be saved. God is going to totally change you and you're going to become a brand new person on the inside. Isn't that a good deal? That's awesome. Man, to think that God has already dealt with everything and it's just a matter of will you receive it, not a matter of will you change your life. You can't change your life. You need a Savior. So you're going to make Jesus your Savior. I'd like to ask everybody in here to pray this prayer after me so that they won't uh, feel like we're just listening to them. But you pray this and mean it from your heart and I believe you're going to be changed. Say, Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. And I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you are now alive. That you live in me. I am saved. I am forgiven. In the name of Jesus. Amen. You believe that? You believe that? This is a question. Yes or no? You believe that? Amen. Isn't that great? You know now, according to the Bible, in the Spirit, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, we had some men pray. We had some women pray. You're still a male or a female. Your body didn't change. Your mind and your feelings don't instantly change. But according to the Word of God, in your spirit... You are now a brand new person. You're completely pure. And God is looking at you in the spirit, not in the physical. Isn't that great? You're going to have to start seeing yourself now instead of just the outside. You're going to have to look on who you are in Christ. And in the spirit, you're now made as a temple. God created you to fill with His Holy Spirit. That's significant because that means He would never deny giving you the Holy Spirit. If you understood what I talk about, sin is not an issue anymore. So He's not going to hold any sin against you. If you have a sin in your life, that doesn't disqualify you. It makes you a prime candidate 
for the baptism of the Holy Spirit because you now need His power so that you can overcome things. So don't let any sense of unworthiness stop you. We're just going to open up the doors of our temple and welcome the Holy Spirit to come take residence on the inside of us. And then I want to ask our prayer ministers to come up here and they're going to stand behind you and after I pray and we welcome the Holy Spirit to come in, they're going to lay hands on you because the Bible says that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was given. And the Holy Spirit would literally come upon people. So we can release this power of the Holy Spirit into your life. And then the Bible also says that when people receive the Holy Spirit, they spoke with tongues. So we're going to pray for you. They're going to lay hands on you after I lead you in prayer. And then I want you to quit asking and believe that God gave you the Holy Spirit because He promised that He would. And so after they lay hands on you, we're just going to start thanking God for giving you the Holy Spirit. And you can start out thanking Him in English. Talk out loud and thank Him and confess your faith that, Father, I believe You did give me the Holy Spirit. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, those of us that know how to pray in tongues, I'm going to ask all of us to start praying in tongues so that you won't feel like we're listening to you. Because the Bible says when we pray in tongues, you're giving thanks. Well, you're praising God. It's your spirit speaking unto God in an unlearned language that doesn't have any of your doubt, any of your fear, any of your unbelief. And you're praising God in this heavenly language. It's awesome. And so that's what we're going to do. And once we start praying in tongues, I want you to quit thanking Him in English and start thanking Him in tongues. And I know some of you think, well, how do you do it? What do you do? I've got a book that will answer all these questions. But if you're ready, you can do it right now. The number one thing that hindered me, and I think hinders most people, is they are waiting on the Lord to just make you talk in tongues. But that's not how it happens. The Bible says, Acts 2, 4, they, talking about the people, spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. You have to talk. You have to make the sounds and believe that the Holy Spirit's inspiring it. It's very similar to when I taught tonight. I believe that God spoke through me, but He didn't take my mouth and make it talk. If I would have just stood here and said, Oh God, speak through me and then open my mouth and wait on Him to force me to talk, nothing would have ever happened. I spoke. I thought of the words. That's the reason it came out with my personality. But I believe God inspired it. That's the way speaking in tongues is. You speak and by faith believe the Holy Spirit's inspiring it. And once you get over the newness of it, you'll find out it's just flowing out of you and it edifies you and builds you up and you'll find out that it is the Holy Spirit. But that's what we're going to do. And if you're ready, you can speak in tongues right now. Isn't that a good deal? That's awesome. The Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer. And I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you that all of these are now born again. Thank you for these that just confessed you as their Lord. And that they are now brand new people on the inside. Thank you that they passed from death unto life and they are now new creatures. Thank you that all of us up here are born again and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we just open up the doors of this temple. We give you right. We welcome you to come into our life and take up residence and begin to give us your inspiration, revelation. These gifts of the Holy Spirit, specifically this one about speaking in tongues. Father, we desire to be able to bypass our brain and worship you in spirit and in truth. 
And so we open up our heart to receive right now. We lay hands on you in Jesus' name and say, Receive the Holy Spirit. We loose this power into you right now and believe that the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit is flowing in your body right now. Thank you, Father. We agree and release this and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Now, I want you to start thanking God for giving you the Holy Spirit. Don't ask anymore, but thank Him. And I'd like to ask you to raise your arms like this as a sign of surrender. When somebody sticks a gun in your back, you go, I surrender. Just surrender right now and say, Father, I receive. And those of you that know how to speak in tongues, let's start praying in tongues right now. And as we speak in tongues, you just join in with us. Quit praying in English and start speaking in tongues. Start making sounds. Don't worry about what it sounds like. It doesn't have to sound like what you would think is a perfect language. When a baby starts talking, it's not really very good, but that parent knows what that child is saying. God hears your heart. Man, God inhabits the praises of His people. You're bypassing your brain, your doubt and your unbelief, and you're speaking to God right now from your born-again spirit. The Bible says when you do this, you edify yourself. You build yourself up on your most holy faith. You're able to release yourself to God in a way you can't with just your normal understanding. Thank you, Jesus. Just speak. Be bold with it right now. Let it flow through you. Don't worry about it. Quit listening to yourself and focus on God. Focus on blessing Him and communicating to Him, praising Him in a language without any limits. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. I think every one of these is speaking in tongues. I'm not sure. I couldn't hear everyone, but it looks like it. Did you not speak in tongues? Well, now, do you think God would give everybody on both sides of you this gift and not give it to you? You do? What's wrong? You know what? God gave you the Holy Spirit. Let me say this to you. Whether you spoke in tongues or not, I believe God gave you the Holy Spirit because He promised He would give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Now, you should speak in tongues because when you speak in tongues, it's just like flipping a switch and letting the power of the Holy Spirit flow through you. So it's important that you go ahead and speak in tongues. And I've got a book where I wrote down all of the things that hindered me. When I first prayed to receive the Holy Spirit, it took me three and a half years before I spoke in tongues. But that's because I was a Baptist. And I had been told that that was of the devil. And I had so many fears that it just kept me from doing it. But I finally got my questions answered. I've written all of this in a book, and I promise you that this will help you. There's been thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people speaking tongues after reading this book. And I want to give it to you as a gift, because we want to make sure you get the full benefit. This could be the most important thing 
that has ever happened in your life since being born again. It's that important. But you've got to understand it to get the full benefit of it. So I want to give you this book. This is Robert right here in the aisle with his Bible up. And if you would follow him for just a moment, and uh, he'll give you that book. If you have any questions, they'll answer your questions. They'll help you any way they can. Just follow uh, Robert right here. He'll take you to a room, give you that book, and help you. Let's praise God for all of these. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. That was five or six people here that got born again, and I don't know, maybe a 10 or 12 that got the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Jesus. These are our prayer ministers. I tell you, I appreciate them. They've been faithful. They've been praying with people. We've had some great things happen. I've had a couple of them tell me about people that they've prayed with, miracles that have taken place. And they are here to help you. If any of you have had your faith quickened, you know, you may have already had somebody pray with you this week, but if you get your faith put on Jesus instead of on yourself, it's like a laser. Instead of it being diffused and looking different ways, if you have it focused on Jesus only, then it gives you added power. If you have been touched by this tonight and you've had your attention focused on the Lord, you can come down here and agree with them again and you can see the manifestation of the things that you desire. So these are our prayer ministers. If you need prayer, please come forward and let one of them pray with you. The rest of you, thank you so much for coming. Don't forget that we have CDs and DVDs of the entire week, every single session, already duplicated back there. Please get them. And if not for yourself, I know many of you had a great time and were blessed and you're thinking, how am I going to tell people about this? Get a CD set and take it to them. Let them listen to it. And you know what? They can still receive, even though it's through that medium. So anyway, thanks for coming. God bless you. You are dismissed.